This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Buddha Saranai, the Buddha's blessings and inspiration be with you. Welcome to another episode in this ongoing series devoted to the teachings of the Buddha. Last week we completed a rather marathon few sessions on the mind training exercises, including looking at the procedure for mind training, the five powers for life and a death time, and the set of 18 commitments and 22 instructions to follow so that whatever body chitta we have, we have does not degenerate. Now we're going on to the Bodhisattva deeds, otherwise known as the six perfections. But as we usually do, let's first set our motivation for the program today. As we're talking about bodhicitta, let that be our motivation. In other words, let our part- participating in this program become the cause for us to become enlightened so we can best help all other beings everywhere. Thank you. Our choice as Buddhists is basically whether we want to attain the state of an arhat or a Buddha. If we just aspire to become an arhat, one who is free from suffering through understanding the nature of reality, then we don't really need to practice the Bodhisattva path right away. It's said in the Mahayana that even someone who meditates and becomes an arhat will at some stage be urged by a Buddha to continue working towards full Buddhahood. So what is the difference? Well, an arhat just focuses on the wisdom realizing the nature of reality, while a bodhisattva also develops bodhicitta, the mind to gain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. A much-revered ancient Indian master by the name of Chandrakirti wrote that bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing the nature of reality are the two wings which take us to enlightenment. Just as a bird cannot fly with only one wing, practitioners cannot become Buddhas without an experiential understanding of these two. If they just focus on wisdom, they become arhats. But if they just focus on bodhicitta, they can't even leave cyclic existence, although they will have higher rebirths. We are going to continue talking as though we all want to be Buddhas, and so we'll describe the bodhisattva path. But even if you are only aiming at becoming an arhat, this information will be helpful. So please don't tune out. The six perfections that make up what is known as the Bodhisattva's deeds are generosity, ethics, patience, joyous effort, concentration and wisdom. Practicing these, Bodhisattvas, that is people who have devoted themselves to becoming a Buddha to benefit all beings, gradually accumulate positive potential and weaken their negativities until their minds are ready to make the big switch from ordinary being to Buddha. That requires a particular kind of concentration called calm abiding. Some of you will know it as shamatha, which is then used to develop the special insight known as vipassana that cuts through our wrong view of reality and establishes the correct view. With that correct view comes the destruction of all afflictive emotions and suffering. Of course, a bodhisattva is not only restricted to six kinds of actions. Someone intent on helping all others must have many tricks up their sleeve because each person is different and needs different help from others. However, generally we can say that bodhisattvas cultivate the six perfections. Chandrakirti, in his text Entry into the Middle Way, suggested that as giving is the main cause for wealth, we practice generosity to get the wealth and resources we need to best help others. He also says, 
we should practice ethics to gain higher rebirths in cyclic existence, like in the God realms, where it's easier to practice the path. We should practice patience, he goes on, so that in the future we have an attractive appearance that will bring many beings into our circle of students, friends and helpers. Then, to prevent our Dharma practice from degenerating and to be naturally inclined to Dharma in the future, we practice joyous effort or enthusiasm. We practice concentration to develop the bliss of calm abiding and wisdom to know right from wrong, the nature of reality and so on. Although these perfections are all practiced simultaneously, they take effect in sequence. The first to ripen fully is the perfection of generosity, and when this happens, the Bodhisattva no longer has any fear of giving. He or she has not the slightest inkling of miserliness and will give bodily parts, wealth, merit, in fact everything, without a qualm. It's said that even when such a person is asked to give, they experience immense happiness. Then when Bodhisattvas perfect ethics, they no longer have even the slightest harmful thought, attachment or any other delusion, not even in their dreams. A person who never breaks any vows but has not yet perfected ethics may still experience attachment in their dreams, but not the Bodhisattva who has the perfection of ethics. Then one who has perfected patience has completely eradicated anger. They don't experience even the slightest irritation. Gosh, imagine what that must be like. Even if a torturer hacked their body to pieces bit by bit, they only feel compassion and use their experience to deepen their bodhicitta. I often mention one very high lama by the name of Ruba Rinpoche, who used to live in Dharamsala in India in the monastery of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He has passed away now, but he spent something like 20 years of his life in Chinese communist prisons. In an article he wrote for Mandala magazine about his experiences, he said readers would not believe the horrors the, the communists inflicted on him and the other prisoners. Yet at the monastery, he was the most kind and gentle man. Even though when I last saw him, he couldn't walk anymore, at least partly from the torture in the communist prisons. But he had no rancor for his tortures at all, and just radiated gentle love and kindness. I think he must have fully realized the perfection of patience, if not all the other perfections as well. He truly was a very great person. Then going on to joyous effort, when bodhisattvas have realized this perfection, they no longer experience anything but enthusiasm for practicing the Dharma and helping others. Ordinary people like me are all too ready when difficulties arise in practice to find some distraction or to complain how hard it is and think of giving up. But for someone who has realized the perfection of joyous effort, such difficulties only spur them on. They, they increase his or her energy for helping others. Here we can bring to mind Mother Teresa and the incredible difficulties she went through to establish her organization and keep it going in India. It's hard enough to set anything up in India, even if you have money and resources, but if you don't, it must be extremely difficult. And yet, through sheer determination and love of God, she was able to draw on extraordinary reserves of energy and persevere to benefit countless beings. It's quite amazing, don't you think? Now, wouldn't you like to be able to put your mind on an object of concentration and it stays there for as long as you want, without you ever feeling anything but bliss? Wouldn't that be great? 
That's what happens when we fully realize the perfection of concentration. We can no longer be distracted or lose mindfulness. At some stage, a bodhisattva practicing the six perfections comes to a point at which their concentration is so good that it generates intense enjoyment. At that time, the enjoyment or bliss can easily become a distraction. But one who has moved beyond this point is never distracted by the bliss. Their mindfulness and awareness is so powerful that it does not even allow that to happen. This is when a bodhisattva has attained the perfection of concentration. As bodhisattvas move through the stages of concentration, they do, of course, meditate on the nature of reality, but in the earlier stages can't do so fully. The one who has perfected concentration, however, can place their mind on contemplating the nature of reality and keep it there for as long as they like, for years if they wish. By that stage, the bodhisattva's five sense consciousnesses, the eye, ear, nose, taste and touch consciousnesses, are completely absorbed, and only the mental consciousness remains active and completely focused. At this stage, when the meditator sits down to meditate, the object, in this case the nature of reality, appears immediately and clearly without effort to the mind, and it stays like that for as long as the meditation lasts. So that is briefly the six perfections. Now we're going to look at them one by one. Perfections here don't mean a perfect action like Roger Federer's perfect forehand, or in terms of generosity, giving Aunt Ellie the painting she's had her eye on for the last six months. Perfection here refers to the virtuous mind of Bodhicitta that motivates and accompanies an action. So the perfection of generosity has little to do with a gift or the act of giving, but everything to do with the mind of the donor. Let's say, for instance, a rich man gives the Buddha a very expensive Ferrari out of, exp out of respect. At the same time, a boy gives the Buddha a handful of sand, imagined as gold, with a mind of pure bodhicitta. The boy's offering will fall under the practice of the perfection of generosity, while the rich man's offering will not. Nor should we think that the perfection of generosity means that we eliminate the poverty of all beings. If that was the criterion for the perfection of giving, nobody has accomplished it yet because the world is still full of poverty-stricken people and beggars. So the mind is the main thing to consider when we talk about the perfection of generosity. As Chandrakirti says in Entry to the Middle Way, the thought to give all beings everything, together with the fruits of this, is said to be the perfection of generosity. Thus it is simply a state of mind. The perfection of generosity is defined by the mind that is more than joyful to give away everything to others, even the merit that comes with practicing generosity. So how do we meditate on the perfection of generosity? It's not just a case of getting rid of miserliness or desire for our body and wealth. Our hearts don't have any desire for such things, but that doesn't mean they've realized the perfection of generosity. To realize this perfection, we first have to meditate on the disadvantages of, mi of miserliness and then come to see how the body and wealth are impermanent. Of course, the major disadvantage of miserliness is that it leads to a lack of resources and lower realm rebirth in the future, particularly rebirth among the pretas. Another thing to consider is that all our possessions are impermanent and sooner or later will no longer be able to serve us as we wish. 
so why not use them to practice generosity now? If we compare the benefits of generosity, though, we see that the basis of finding good resources and wealth in the future is giving. And since we can't really practice the Dharma if we haven't enough to eat, or if our shelter is useless in keeping out the icy winds, we need good resources in the future to continue our spiritual path. Therefore, we have to practice generosity now. The merit that we get from generosity also ensures that in a future life we will meet a highly realized teacher who can show us the path to enlightenment again. Chandrat Kirti says in one of his verses, Through giving they will attain a meeting with a superior being. Then they will cut the continuum of cyclic existence going to the peace caused by meeting a superior. So there's much to gain by practicing generosity. And when we feel miserly, not willing to give, it's good to remember how all our possessions are impermanent. Our life does not very last very long and death will definitely come. Still clinging onto our possessions at death time will not bode well for our coming life and just creates more samsara instead of destroying it. Clearly seeing how worthless possessions, friends and so on are at death time helps us to lose some of our attachment to them. Then perhaps in due course we can use them in acts of pure generosity for greater, for greater benefit. As I said before, a Bodhisattva practicing generosity experiences great joy when someone even asks them to give. Then not only is the Bodhisattva very happy at seeing the dissatisfaction of the person they are giving to, but they know that the act of giving is helping them to realize their aim to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. So they do not have to wait for the results of karma to ripen to experience happiness from the act of giving. They get it right away. Chandrakirti again says, Even for a very rough-minded being with inferior compassion, intent on their own purpose, desired resources arise from giving, causing the pacification of suffering. So the power of generosity is so great that it doesn't need bodhisattva motivation to make beings happy. Even people like me, who give mainly with the intention to get something for themselves in return, will get good resources in the future and not suffer so much if they give. So the advantages of cultivating generosity over the disadvantages of miserliness are great. Meditating again and again on these benefits and disadvantages, our mind can become convinced and will be able to practice with a real passion for giving. Then, when we can quite happily give away all our wealth, possessions, and even our body parts, as well as the merit from such acts of generosity, just as we can now give away a worthless stone, we will have realized the perfection of giving. Now I think I've spoken enough for a while, so how about we do a little meditation at this point? Please sit comfortably and focus your mind on your breath, letting your thoughts come and go as they wish. Try not to become caught up in them, but if you do, just bring the mind gently back onto the breath.
contemplating your life, think about the good resources you enjoy, good food, comfortable shelter, warm bed and so on. These all come from positive karma caused by being generous in the past. Without that generosity, life would have been much more difficult and you might have been like a beggar in India. Contemplate this. about someone you might have come across who's very poor or someone who might find it very difficult to get good resources no matter how hard they try. This is the result of miserliness in the past, even though they might not be miserly now. If we do not practice generosity now, this is how we will be in the future. Then not only will we find life very difficult, but we'll not be able to help others either.
Now contemplate how your possessions are all completely impermanent. They're in the process of disintegration even, even as you think about them. In due course they will all be useless. Sooner or later you will have to part from them no matter how valuable they appear to you now. So why not use them to good purpose now? possessions and so on impermanent, but so are you. Death approaches minute by minute, and we have no idea when it will finally strike. It could be today, tomorrow, next week, or next year. If we died with this attachment for our possessions on our mind, will death be peaceful or not? Think about leaving all your treasures behind, never to, leave, never to see them again. How would you feel? Both you and they being impermanent, wouldn't it be better to use them to create positive karma now so that you will have good resources again in the future? Try to see your possessions as gifts to create merit rather than objects to cling to.
welcome out of meditation. Our time is up, but thank you for joining us today and please tune in again next week when we will continue with the perfections. Please dedicate any positive potential we've developed today to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Thank you and goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.